This is Bedside, a podcast series on a mission to debunk sex. I'm your host, Tatiana, and each week we'll uncover stories, ideas, routines, and expert information to help guide you on your ever-evolving journey of good sex. We believe that through democratizing sexual wellness, we can shift cultural taboos and make way for authentic and limitless access to pleasure, joy, and connection to the body. On today's episode, I chat with Raquel Rotman, a Lima-based Spanish-speaking sexologist and mastermind behind the page Corazón con Leche. Raquel is a TEDx speaker and author with a background in psychology and biology. She uses her impressionable platform to speak to South America about taboos of sex and sexuality. Her hope is to normalize the ever-evolving intricacies about bodies, minds, and desires. And it's all broken down into relatable and candid conversation with her community that is impacting and transcending cultural borders and dated ideologies. On this episode, Raquel delves into the cultural landscape of Peru and the majority of Latin America when it comes to stigmas, machismo, religion, privilege, and so much more. We chat about her work, her passion to bring vital sexual health information to South America, and her agenda to normalize what we've been so quick to culturally shame. This is an episode you definitely don't want to miss. Let's get started. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so happy to be here, Tatiana. Thank you so much for inviting me. I love your podcast. Thank you. So for those who aren't familiar with your amazing work, I'd love for you to tell us about who you are and how you got started with Corazón con Leche. Okay, so hello, my name is Raquel and I have a page on Instagram called Corazón con Leche. And just to get started, for everybody to understand, there's like a little bit of a backstory. I, I studied psychology and biology in the States. And after graduating, I moved back to Peru. Uh, I was born in Paris and then I lived in Peru for a short while, which is where most of my family is. And then I lived most of my life in the States where I graduated, but then I came back. And when I came back, I realized that there were a lot of negative messages and like stigmatized messages around sexuality. I've always been like a very sexually active and open person. I've always been very comfortable with my sexuality. In university, I pretty much finished like my bachelor's with like the the sex like a sexuality thesis. And it's always something that I knew I wanted to do, but when definitely when I moved back to Peru, I started getting mixed messages like not even mixed messages, let's be real. It was like, no, you can't leave your house without a bra on. If you smoke weed, that probably means you're easy. If you're walking around in a provocative outfit if you and you get raped or, you know, acosada, you know, which is just like any sort of like sexual misconduct, sexual assault. Yes, it's your fault. So I realized that there were a lot of very, very negative and potentially harmful messages that were coming from just ignorance around um, sexuality. And so I decided that I had to launch this page. And so tell me a little bit more about your experience growing up. So I know that you were born in Paris. 
you kind of come from a multicultural background. So tell me a little bit about what the dialogue was like at home and in school around sex. My parents have always been very liberal. I was your classic case of uh, the kid that rubs up against any piece of furniture in the house. And my parents took that and were able to talk to me about what privacy is, about what intimacy is. They definitely normalized the fact that I was feeling these things in my body. Um, My parents uh, also had a large group of LGBTQ plus friends. And so for me, even before I knew what sex was, I definitely felt, I mean, I knew that it was normal to have two people of the same sex love each other or um, somebody that is a man but dresses uh, like a woman and expresses herself that way. So um, it was always just very normalized for me and that definitely gives me a certain advantage and a lot of privilege to be able to talk about these uh, topics in a very destigmatized tone. I realized early on in high school that a lot of my friends and even not like the closest of friends would come to me for like sexual advice or if they had some doubt or a question. And when I was in college, I I briefly, I mean, for two years I was studying biology as my major, but then I quickly, very quickly realized that I didn't want to pursue medicine after watching Scrubs. (laughs) And, And so I was just like, I cannot do that. Let me study psychology, which I've always loved and really get involved with the sexuality courses and and see what comes out of that and so then I I quickly turned into something as of a like a potential career in the future and when I graduated I uh, I took a sabbatical because my mom had moved back to Peru she had opened up a practice she was a teacher in the states but she does early child development therapy and like observations so I started to help her out with that and I very quickly started realizing that there are all these terrible messages around sexuality, Um, not just like from what I would receive from concerned family members and like what would be of my reputation in Lima, because I would always come back and visit, but that was for like two weeks at a time, you know? And it was like, oh, watch out, the cousin's coming from Miami, you know, like, let's (laughs) be careful. And then I, I moved to Lima and they were like, well, now you live here. You need to be really careful about like what you do and the type of, you know, persona that you put out there. And uh, well, just I like personal story. One of the first people that I hooked up with when I got to Lima, I had just bought my pack of condoms and I walked back into the room with like the what three, four condoms that come in the box. And he like very judgmentally asked me like, why do you have so many condoms? And you could just like, you could, he looked at me as if I was bringing in like a Planned Parenthood bowl of free condoms, like just like with, (laughs) with like different flavors and colors and glow in the dark condoms. And I was just like, my dude, uh, I just opened a pack. If it weren't for me, we wouldn't even be having sex because he didn't even bother to bring a condom. So don't judge me for knowing, like just knowing that I'm sexually active and that I will eventually need a condom and having my own condom and not having to like rely on someone for that because it's everybody's job. Right. And I think you bring up this really interesting point that I feel like is pretty prevalent in the States as well, which is that we have this dialogue of either being like hypersexual or kind of like sticking to this really clinical, almost shameful narrative of sex. Totally. I mean, it's just... I mean, how do I how do I put it? It's like you can't be sexually empowered without being considered like hypersexualized, right? And it's just like the slut shaming here, for example, with a country in which 
machismo culture is, is so prevalent. I mean, it's just the norm. And and especially with women, like it's not even the men being machistas, it's it's the women as well. And it's it's like the slut shaming around, like, like I launched my page and people were like, oh my God, no, what, what is she doing? But it, it grew so quickly because there was just a necessity for somebody to say vagina masturbation, like just, you don't need to buy that intimate soap that they're trying to sell you. Please just pee after sex so that you can prevent a UTI and it's not the guy's job to buy the condom. And it's like, people just needed to hear that, you know, like, right. People needed to see an image of like a pair of panties around someone's leg with discharge on it. Like nobody had normalized it. And it's just like basic bodily functions and just basic, just how, how do you behave in a social situation uh, regarding a, a sexual encounter, a sexual situation? Yeah. And I feel like people just don't want to feel alone. Like, and, and they want to see themselves represented in some way. And so what is so amazing about your page is that you kind of, say these things or show these images that people are like, oh yeah, me too. Right. That's exactly what I want people to feel when they go on my page or at least maybe um, with a post where I'm talking about consent, they'll be like, oh shit, maybe that one situation I was in wasn't necessarily the most, you know, consensual or, oh wow, my gender, my gender identity makes a little bit more sense now or, you know, just, um, okay, I feel seen, you know, I feel seen, I feel heard. And um, definitely one of the questions that I receive the most is like, am I normal? And that can be just planted in so many different ways. Like, am I normal? Is this weird? Am I broken? Am I doing it okay? I haven't seen a body like this before. I've never heard of somebody that shares this same sexual fantasy. So I know you recently gave a TED talk. Yes. <laughs> um, I like blacked out after that. <laughs> um, like all I can tell you, like my memories of giving my TED talk were like a month of just waking up with with like such a high level of anxiety because at any given moment I was like, I could be memorizing it. And I'm standing in the on stage and I look out at the audience and it's just black because the lights are so bright. And um you saw it, like you've seen me. I'm a very expressive person with my hands. My hands were pretty much like out in front of me the whole time because like where else am I going to fucking put them, right? And like, <laughs> and like I just see black, the bright lights are blinding me and I just see like pretty much my hands highlighting. Like I'm surprised the camera didn't capture my hands like dripping sweat. So for those who didn't get to see it, what was the premise of your talk? Tell us a little bit more about it. Um, I pretty much just uh, talk about like what is normal and a little bit about social constructs and how they really dictate our lives, you know, like, and like, I, I always say like, oh, this such and such is a social construct. And then, but that doesn't mean that it's not real and that it doesn't affect you to a certain level. So just, um, I try to talk about like what I mentioned, the five fantasies and just how really there's no like normal fantasy. There's somebody out there that, that shares it with you. And the only way to find out is if like you explore that on your own. And like, if you try to seek out like a community, but that it's in Peru, it's such a problem because no one talks about sexuality. So like, even when I mentioned those five, that list of five, I was like, but guys, I, I really can't tell you if, if that those are the fantasies here because no one talks about sex, but everyone is looking for like that confirmation and something to relate to. But just with sex, we shut it down. We sweep it under the rug. We don't, we don't talk about it. 
Right. And so I think that's a perfect transition to talk about what is the sexual landscape in Peru? It's it's complicated because before answering any questions, like I want to clarify that I definitely come from a very privileged point of view. Um, but um, in Peru, it's a very taboo and very conservative topic. Um, there's definitely a little bit of sexual liberation and empowerment coming a little bit from like the massive, you know, futurist female kind of like feminist front that there is going on, like this kind of um, in in fashion type of feminism. But it's definitely still very, very taboo. I mean, female sexual pleasure is is pretty much null. LGBTQ plus rights are just pretty much non-existent. There's still not marriage equality here. So just to mention that, uh, the the sex ed in the schools is very scarce. Uh, really, the only sex ed that you see is in like higher economic status schools, private schools, you know, and uh, not at all in, in public schools. There's actually this whole social movement called hashtag con mis hijos no te metas which is translated into um, don't mess with my kids. And it started in 2016 and it's very, and it's basically just like a very highly conservative, highly religious group of people that are in total opposition of teaching educación sexual integral, which is just the basic equivalent of like uh, sex positive sex education. And they use a, a term coined in the 90s by like a religious group called ideología de género, which is just a way of critiquing like gender studies by claiming that it's pretty much a conspiracy theory out to ruin like the family system and a society that was founded upon like a natural order. And it's nuts. Like these people get together every year, they march, they make a bunch of noise. And so sex ed programs in most of the country are um, pretty much non-existent. I mean, I can't help but tie back that movement to this concept of machismo, right? 100%. I mean, I mean, there's this whole... Yeah, and so have you heard of um, Las Tesis? The, what I was wearing, it's, it's not what I was wearing. It's, it's your, like, it's, it's pretty much a, a movement. I'll send it to you. It's a feminist movement and they've been doing these march with a, with marches and it's against the, the sexual and the, and the gender violence in, in Latin American countries. It started in Chile. And so there was a religious response to that from a religious group. It was pretty much men saying, we're not the rapists. And it's just like, what are you even chanting for at this point? Yeah. Like, I'm pretty sure a lot of you are. And it's just like men and women. It's not just the men, like I said. It's the women that also express a lot of machismo. And it's just generation and generation that just raise kids with this very conservative um, point of view and just this huge double standard between men and women and what the role and gender roles and what they look like and what sexuality looks like. And um, yes, that is where we are. That is just the norm in Latin America. And I can't help but also relate this sex ed movement to this greater political movement that seems to be happening all throughout Latin America. I mean, South America has had a crazy history with just political movements. There's a ton of turmoil. With corruption and corrupt political governments. And it's just, yeah. So I'm really happy that, that you touched on that. And I'm just going to go on a rant here about just like the politi <laughs> the political climate right now. And um, this kind of ties back into like when I'm answering all of your questions, I, I do speak 
from, you know, my personal experience, but um, also I feel like it's imperative to give like a narrative of all these social dynamics in South America, considering all the events that are happening. And um, these events are just evidence of backlash between social classes. Here in Latin America, there's um, like the same problem that you have in the States and pretty much anywhere else in the world where you have the 1% versus the rest. There's the high class, the middle class, the low class. Um, and it's not so different in that sense. But there's a huge difference in the standard of living for the middle and lower classes here. It's significantly worse than um, the middle and lower class in the States. And what I mean by this is that, like, for example, many people here in the capital of Peru, Lima, don't have hot water. And that's just in the capital. Like, you can't even begin to imagine what it's like in the rest of the country. Uh, many people don't have their own electricity, uh, which is very common for like a, a whole neighborhood of people to like fraudulently hook up an electricity line. We're talking about public schools where like if you go to a public school, chances are you probably won't even finish or get to college. There's a lot of period poverty. You know, a lot of girls don't even get to secondary school because they start missing classes due to their period. Um, in, in the states where you have housing projects that are designed by architects, you have people here that build their own houses from brick and cement and from like plastic to put a roof over their heads. And these are neighborhoods that are 10 minutes away in car from the most luxurious neighborhoods in Lima. What I'm trying to get at with this is that where in the States you have a lower and middle class that has certain rights covered and have a humane shot at life at least. Here in Latin America, you have social classes that have been severely, severely neglected. And on a day-to-day -day basis, they see the rich people driving Mercedes, going on five trips a year, and having a house in the city, in the beach, in the country for the respective seasons. You know, you have like three or four maids working in the house at once. And it's the same in Chile, it's the same in Argentina, Colombia, Ecuador, it's the same in Bolivia, and it was the same in Venezuela until everything imploded. So um, when you ask me all of these questions, yeah, it's, it's very very, it's key for me to highlight the reality and address it, putting into consideration all of these dynamics. And really, if my page has been able to make any sort of impact this year, and if I've been offered any of the, of the opportunities that I've had this year, all of them, really, it's because I've been able to shed light on all these issues from a position of huge privilege, but without um, leaving behind uh, really the empathy that you need in order to understand everything that's happening in the country. Right. And I, I, I love that so much about your work. Like there's such this ear for empathy. Like you, you're really listening, you're really analyzing a culture and you're understanding where you come from. Right. And I think like so many people, especially from privileged positions, don't even see a glimpse into their privilege. And so it also brings up an interesting point where I can't help but think of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Where you see this lower class, which is evident in the United States, in South America, and these people are dealing with period poverty, just getting the essential hot water, electricity. And then you see this more privileged lens where we're worried about vibrators. That's not even on their radar. Exactly. It's, it's exactly that. And it's definitely, you know, just... Um, even getting access to just like basic healthcare and basic um, family planning, like the the rates of teenage pregnancy in Peru are just sky high, okay? 
And in efforts to alleviate this, a few years back, they did this whole campaña so that um, they could pass a law which stated that girls uh, ages since the age of 16, I want to say, can go to any public hospital and get access to birth control. And they were really promoting the Nexplanon implant because I guess they had gotten, you know, sponsorship from that. And so they had that option. And I started receiving messages. I received one message from a girl that said, I know that these are my rights. Like, I know that this is a law that is in act right now. And I went to a hospital, she was 17, to get um, my birth control because I'm a sexually active girl. And they pretty much turned me down and made me feel terrible for seeking birth control because I'm so young. And I was like, I want to know if more people have experienced this. So I asked her if I could share it. And I asked people to share with me if if something similar had happened to them. And so many people wrote back Tatiana and it was just like, there was a really strange pattern that I noticed. Well, it's really not strange at all. It's machismo behind it, but um, it's all the patriarchy. But um, it was like, okay, girls that were young and wanted like 16, 17, 18 and went to get their free birth control because you can get it from ages like 16 to 25. Um, No, I'm sorry, 16 to 30. And um, you can get it in that span and you can get it for free. So they would go, they would ask for their birth control knowing that they were entitled to it. And the doctors or the nurses or the, or the technicians would immediately make them feel guilty about seeking birth control, telling them that they were too young, that they shouldn't be having sex, and pretty much just like doing the total opposite that you need to tell a sexually active teen. <laughs> All they're doing is being responsible and smart to go seek out birth control. Like that's, that already says a lot about them. But being raised in such a conservative environment, like it's not like they're going with their head held high. These girls are walking in scared, vulnerable, really seeking help. And then I started receiving messages from like the other extreme, which were women that just went in their 20s and just didn't want to have kids yet. Like they were still working on their careers. They were still working on their studies. And when they went to seek out this like long-term birth control that like works for a a few years, the doctors would shame them about not wanting to start a family and like, no, you shouldn't be seeking this type of birth control because it protects you for too long and you should already be looking for your husband. And it was just like the craziest. You're kind of getting this cultural expectation and nuance thrown at you where it's a law and it's just like these these like moralistic judgmental slut shamey doctors and and medical professionals are just imposing their own values on people and it's not it's totally going against what the whole initiative was to begin with wow so tell me a little bit about faith and religion because i know that that must have some sort of relationship with all the shame oh yeah it's it's huge I mean that we would need an entirely different episode for that but it is just (laughs) it is it's it's most of the country it's most of the reality you know and like I I I see a a percentage of it I'm I'm Jewish actually and um so a lot of my friends are are (laughs) in the Jewish community which is really very quite small here um there's only like three thousand of us but no, it's it, it's most of the country. And that's also why a lot of the times when when people come to me with sexual shame and guilt due to like a religious and conservative upbringing, I don't always know what to say to them because I do come from a position where it was always very normal for me. And so I need to empathize and really just lend 
a hearing ear or a shoulder or just like let them be seen and heard because a lot of the times people don't aren't necessarily looking for for advice they just need to like tell you what's happening and i think that you know i i also i wasn't raised religious i think i went to church for like a year cuz my parents were like let's show her faith and what it could mean potentially <laughs> but i've really come to understand that there's so much shame loaded behind this religious messaging and i i actually remember i used to look look after a girl and she went to catholic school and she came back one day and she said Today, they put all these little baby fetuses on the table and told us, you know, kind of a scare tactic. Don't get pregnant. And these messages around fear are really interesting. And I, it's fascinating to correlate it to the political climate, too, to just see that, like, there's a lot of fear. There's so much fear. I mean, they really just, like, inculcate fear fear into anything sexual. I mean, I was recently shooting like a, a mini series for this uh, news channel and they, when they would ask me to like build the episodes, like I would talk about, you know, masturbation or, or your first time having sex. And at the end we would tackle like myths that society had heard about sexuality. And some of these myths are ridiculous. It was like, if you masturbate, the hair is going to grow on your hands. Like if you have sex for the first time, you can't get pregnant. Like just just crazy things where it's just like, what? That Where is this misinformation coming from? Which is misinformation that is very difficult to, to unlearn, you know? And it's, mm. and it's, it's just an ongoing problem here. <laughs> of course. And then when it's connected with faith, it's really tough and complicated. Yeah. But so anyways, I'm a little bit curious about what the Me Too movement has looked like in Latin America. I'm curious what it, what that's looked like because I think in the states and I know that you've understood what's been going on in the states. But have you seen the movement impact or change culture in Peru? I mean, okay, so with the Me Too movement it's a little bit more complicated because the equivalent to us would be like ni una menos. And, and that really just fights against just like sexual violence and like gender violence in Latin America and how that's just pretty much a, a, a normalized part of uh, machismo culture. I mean, how many feminicides did we end the year with um, last year? It was like 160. And those are only the ones that are accounted for. Like they don't have paper keeping <laughs> that are like uh, documentation in like the, not in the, in the smaller cities of, of the country. And so that, that number is like a very, very rough estimate. So I mean, the Me Too movement has definitely shed light. There's actually a whole page called Peru Me Too in which they're just constantly posting um, men that are uh, guilty of sexual assault, like with a picture. And it's like, if you see him, you know, this is this guy, watch out. And um, so definitely it's, it's, it's becoming more seen, but it's been an, an ongoing problem for, for so, so long. And it goes like much more beyond. Would you say though, because being in the in the States, when the Me Too movement hit, when the Harvey Weinstein case came out, it kind of exploded. Like I remember going to cocktail parties back home over the holidays and my parents' friends would come to me and say, I don't know, should I, I can't keep the door open anymore or closed anymore in the office. And, and like, it kind of just was like this cultural disruption. So I was wondering, has that sort of happened in Peru yet? Or would you say you're still kind of on the brink of it? I mean, okay, so like, 
you'll see now you'll see like plastered on the buses just like acoso will not be um so like sexual assault will not be tolerated on this bus you know so like now it's just like huge on the buses and it's just part of day-to-day but it's not like it's kept up with like regularized like if there is sexual assault on a bus chances are they probably won't do anything about it so now it so now it's like yes you'll you you get the slap on the wrist because it's like publicly you know it's not okay just the way that like discriminating against same-sex couples isn't okay you know but you still have um like uh, police officers that'll come up to uh, a gay couple kissing and will discriminate against them and they will get them on video or you'll get you know like there's just regularly just videos going viral in Peru of like this man sexually assaulting a woman and just like being captured on video but so like people are finding their voice but it's still it's it it's still I mean it's going to continue you know but it's just it's just now gaining traction switching gears here a bit you say that ever since you can remember you felt sexually free so tell me more about that so um well like I mentioned right I just was your classic case of of the little girl that would just rub against her pillow and my parents really managed that well and so I never felt that uh guilt or shame or like um like horror of trying to speak to my parents um, or that fear of speaking to my parents about sex when I came into being sexually active and I kind of wanted to have my and I wanted to have my first time I told my mom about it we went to the gynecologist it was like a very healthy way of of managing um, my sexuality so when I, I came of age and I was in high school my friends would come up to me and ask me for advice so I um quickly realized that I I just wanted to do that with my life and it was a a part of my life that brought me not just like personal pleasure but also like understanding the whole dynamics of it really brought me like professional um, satisfaction so here I am so tell me what your sexual wellness routine is like that's something I read that when you sent that question to me and I was like this is the type of question I've always wanted to be asked but I, but I never had the chance. I never had the chance to be like, what would I say? I mean, I've always been like an like an avid like an advocate of of self pleasure, and um, but there's definitely moments where I don't feel sexy or don't really feel like masturbating, you know. And it's just like I don't think I have like a perfect sexual wellness routine when I'm feeling really disconnected. I really just shout out to Momotaro. Uh, just use the the salve and just like, have you seen that tweet that went viral that was like, um, when I'm feeling down or low or unhappy, like I just stick my hand down my pants and touch my vagina to kind of hold it and really feel how powerful it is. That is incredible. I've not seen that, but that is incredible. I just think back to that and I'm like, that's what I'm going to do. And I just like massage the salve all over. And it's not even like a masturbatory act, okay? It's really just like, this is me, like this is my power, like I do a whole skincare routine that involves my vulva and that's how it should be, like it should, there's no shame in the sexual wellness game, you know? I really like that you talk about how a sexual wellness routine doesn't actually have to be like super sexual, like you don't have to just masturbate, like you can just care for yourself. Yeah, you know, like just touch yourself the way you'd want to be touched, like and that doesn't just involve your genitals and like eventually coming to orgasm, like that's just like caress yourself, like give yourself a little massage with a nice oil or a nice lotion or like 
you don't even need anything materialistic. Like you don't need to buy anything to feel like connected with yourself sexually or like sexually liberated. Like if you want to take that step forward, awesome. But it's just pleasure that you can give yourself in like the simplest way, you know, like sometimes it only takes like less than a minute. I feel like we give so much priority to like what we buy. Like, I don't know. I feel like it's like now I'm vegan. Now I'm a yogi. Now I'm being really ecological and buying like green things. And it's just, you know, Mika Hollander says, you know, like I want to know what's in my condom and in my tampon if I'm buying it, you know? And it's just like, like we demand so much from everything else in our lives. But for some reason, just like sexual wellness isn't a priority. Yeah. And it's so funny like that innately is just one of the most important things that we should be looking after and caring for. And I think that we love to put that on the back burner to just say, oh, you know, most women don't even know what their vaginas look like until way later in life. I was joking the other day, I started using a period cup, a menstrual cup. And I was like, I have never known my vagina so intimately. I've known it intimately in a sexual sense. But when I'm putting up a menstrual cup, I really know the ins and outs. Like just to get a little bit, you know, vivid here, like you never know how little you bleed, you know? People freak out about the cup because they're like, oh no, I bleed. My flow is way too heavy for that. Like that is just buckets. And it's just like, trust me, like just use it and... Trust me, it's so not. Like, you're going to love this. What advice do you have to those who are seeking their own sexual liberation? Where does one begin? Um, I always say that, you know, like, be wary of anything that tries to sell you sexual empowerment or sell you sexual liberation. You, You really just need to connect with yourself, kind of like what we were just saying, you know, like... Give yourself love, understand your body, you know, like look at yourself in the mirror, like look at your pussy, call it by its name, treat yourself, like understand your discharge, you know, like know what's normal for you so that when something's out of balance, you can know when to identify it and like take the necessary measures, like understand what your kinks and fetishes are about, you know, like explore, like be open to explore, you know, like set your own boundaries. It's just, um, it's just getting, getting to know yourself so that when you're interacting with other people, you, you can empathize with yourself and with them as well. I think you bring such a good point up of exploration. Like, isn't that just the most fun thing to do? I mean, to me, it was just like innate, you know, like to me, it was like, no one had to tell me to touch myself like it's so like one of the things that um fascinates me the most about sexuality and definitely when I when I go off to do a master's degree I would I would love to focus on this it's like the sexual a, a healthy sexual development since since we're born and how like our hands immediately go to our genitals just like our hands go to like sucking our thumb and that's just like a pleasurable sensation or we're just seeking like parts of our bodies that have higher number of like nerves and obviously the genitals do you know and it feels good it alleviates stress since we're young we we learn that it can be a coping mechanism of course sometimes it can turn into like something that that is derived from anxiety but like if if you take the opportunity to like teach your kids that what they're feeling with their bodies is fine and that it's and that your body can give you all these pleasurable sensations just like when you eat you know like it's it's so healthy to be in touch with yourself like that since since an early age you have a book coming out. I do. I'm so excited. I'm actually in the process of editing it right now. And it's like, I'm going through that moment where like I read everything and I hate it. 
but I know, <laughs> but I know that like, I just won't stop tweaking it, but, um, it's, it's necessary. I'm super excited. It's going to be illustrated by, um, my friend, um, Desiree Frank. She's definitely, she's the one that illustrates for my page as well. And it pretty much is, let's call it, um, feminine sexuality, 101 for dummies. <laughs> I I touch upon, you know, getting to know your vulva and your reproductive system. And then I talk about masturbation and why it's so important. I talk about gender identity and sexual orientation. I interview um, one of my uh, trans friends whom in the interview, you know, sneak peek, she talks about how she was raised like an empowered man, you know, she, she was raised like a man, like an empowered human. So that just goes to show how machismo works in the society that even someone that identifies as a trans woman, just because of the fact that they raised her under the impression of a man, she just feels that empowered with herself. And she's just like the hottest, like she's just, yes amazing. And then I touch a little bit on uh, sexual desire and arousal. And uh, I had been reading Emily Nagoski's book, Come As You Are, while I was writing my book. And I was so intrigued by everything. And I was just like, this needs to be heard. I talk about the orgasm. Obviously, I talk about uh, partnered sex. And then I finish it off with toys, lube, porn, if you want to consume them if you want to buy anything you know watch out for these ingredients watch out for these materials and try to consume it ethically and so the intent of your book kind of sounds like you can you can bounce around you can pick and choose and flip through yeah that's actually what i what i wanted with the book i wanted it to be the type of book where if you want to read it from cover to cover obviously you're more than welcome to but it can also be the type of book where you can find the chapter that intrigues you the most and you can be a sexually empowered person and maybe find a potential way to explore something new or if you're just now coming into your sexual empowerment like this can be a pretty thorough guide for that and and is it in spanish it's in spanish it's going to be um it's going to be an ebook as well and for now we're only selling it in peru but what's great about um the editorial that i'm doing it with which is planeta they take your book super easily to other countries so i'm hoping to like maybe branch out if if the book has a a good reaction so when people go to your page when they finally get their hands on your book what is one thing that you want them to take away you need to know yourself in order to be able to also be able to engage in respectful relationships with other people, you know? So like, it's important to explore yourself, not just sexually, but just like in being able to come to terms with your gender identity, come um, to terms with the fact that if you want to masturbate four times a day, like that's fine, you know, take a masturbation day. Like you need to understand your own normal in order to empathize with everybody else's. And that really like the only realistic thing to take away from realistically normal thing to take away from sexuality is the fact that it's so diverse and so distinct distinct forever for everybody and that um you're not the only one that shares this fantasy but um it might not be exact and just understanding that really helps you empathize with with the diversity that exists well this was so incredible i'm just so honored to have been able to chat with you and hear a little bit more about what you do because I've been admiring you and your work from afar for quite a bit. No, thank you so, so much. And I love the podcast. You have the, the best guests on. So it's such an honor to be here, you, really. Thank you. So tell us where we can connect with you. Um, you can find me on Instagram at Corazón con Leche. 
Uh, I have the book coming out in the next few months. And for now, I'm really just like channeling all my energy into that. But I'm hoping to eventually be able to like bring some of the super cool sex tech um, stuff to Lima and to really connect with the rest of South America. And yeah, big things are, are coming. I'm so excited for you. I'm so excited. Thank you so much, Tatiana. Thank you for listening to the Bedside Podcast. If you liked this episode and want to follow along with similar stories and interviews, be sure to check out our Instagram at The Bedside and thebedside.co online. Make sure to subscribe, leave a review, and of course, share with your friends. It's the best way you can support us and our good sex mission. Thank you for listening.